Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft here with Sarah Masaryk. Today we have with us some of the ladies from BiblioGuides, Tanya Arnold, Lara Yeverino, and Sarah Kim. Diane, it is a joy to have these ladies back with us again for our third installment of the Mismantle Book Club. And I'm really eager today to talk about this book. I've been waiting since the beginning of this whole process to talk about this book. Uh, I think we're all going to have very strong opinions, and I'm very intrigued to see what everybody thinks. Uh, It's interesting to note for our listeners right away on the upfront that in the original publication of these books, this was considered the end of a trilogy. And so this book was the final chapter. And then the books were renewed by another publisher in the United States only. And that's how we got books four and five. So it's an interesting tone and a dynamic with this book because Margie wrote it in such a way that it could be the period at the end of the sentence or just a semicolon with more to say afterwards. And so I, it'll be interesting to hear what the ladies think. And as always with our book clubs, I just want to make it very clear that there will be spoilers in this discussion, but not right away. So you can listen and we will give you lots of warning and make it very clear when we're headed into spoiler territory. However, if you haven't read books one and two, this could be spoiling right away. So we're going to assume that our listeners either have read books one and two and maybe three, um, or don't care about spoilers. So from this moment on, if you haven't read books one and two, we encourage you, go read those books and listen to those book clubs and then come and discuss this one with us. And then in a little while, we'll move into spoiler territory for book three and we'll give you great warning. And as always, we'll say it, we'll remind you of this at the end. We invite you to join us in the Plumfield Reads Book Club Discussion Group in the BiblioGuides online community. It's a fantastic social media option that's just teeny and tiny and intimate and lovely and just perfect for book club discussion. So it's totally free and you are so welcome to come and join us over there uh, and continue the conversation. So Tanya, you had a look on your face at one point like you were like, but... I'm actually surprised that this was originally maybe considered to be a trilogy because mm-hmm. I feel of all three books, this is the one where you didn't feel completed. I felt I could mm-hmm. have read book one and thought that was a great story. Same with book mm-hmm. two. With book mm-hmm. three, there's still threadings undone with characters. Yes. And I would be very annoyed if this had been the last book. You know, I kind of feel that way about book five. Oh, well, that's a little tragic. Yeah, that shouldn't dissuade anybody from reading book five uh, when it comes out, but, or if you can find one in the wild, like some lucky people. Um, But I think that Margie does a brilliant job of reminding us that we only ever see a snippet of the story. We never get the whole story. Not the beginning, not the end, just the middle. It did strike me that a lot of the action ends with still quite a bit of the story left. So I did feel like she was wrapping up a lot of 
loose ends, you know, making sure that there was acknowledgement of all the characters. There was this focus on ceremony and recognition Mm -hmm. and that felt more of like a closure to me that there was at least 20 or 30 pages at the end there where the action had ended, the crises had all been resolved, but there was still a wrapping up and an acknowledgement and a like coming back to normalcy and, and that kind of a thing at the end of the book. Yes, I agree. It, But it also feels like it was wetting the appetite. Like, see, now they're happy. What's going to happen next? <laughs> right. We can't have that for long. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I I agree with both of you, really, because there is a kind of a long, drawn-out closure tying up all the loose ends. But you don't, at the end, go, ah, oh, how satisfying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think partly because they're so young. Mm. Okay, they reached a milestone, but it's they're still so young. We don't know who marries whom. We don't know for sure what everybody's going to do with their lives. There are a lot of unanswered questions. But I feel like what happens in books four and five is that she introduces another younger set of characters and leaves us with them asking those same questions. And so it's interesting to me because I think it's we've talked in the other book clubs about the generational theme or impact that her stories have, that it spans generations and as one generation is fading, a new one is coming into the light. And you don't know how it's going to turn out when it's all said and done for every character. Lara, what about you? What did you think? I would not have guessed that this was planned to be the end of the book. The last sentence is, it was only starting. Mm-hmm. Right. That is very leading into something <laughs> else. So... If that was, yeah, I think if this was the final book and I was reading this as a trilogy, I would have might have tossed it across the room. (laughs) Been frustrated. (laughs) Well, I ask though, when you read The Last Battle from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, does it feel final to you? No, but it's not supposed to, I don't think. And I would say maybe that's the case here too. If if you want to argue that, though, the last battle, everybody goes to a completely different chapter in their lives. I don't know that I'd have been like, I don't think I'd have thrown the book, but it (laughs) it doesn't feel like, yay, they all lived happily ever after. So this is maybe an interesting moment then to just explain a little bit about the history of the series and, and for our listeners' sake, explain a little bit about the publication of these books. So as I said, originally these books were published in the UK and the US, and they were published as basically as a trilogy. And then an American company of high fame uh, acquired the rights because they wanted to have the option to do other things with the stories. And so they contracted with Margie to finish the stories uh, with books four and five with the option of perhaps making other stories out of it. My understanding from Margie and Jill Morgan of Purple House Press is that the reason why there are so few copies of four and five in the wild is because the American run was pretty limited and because there was no UK run to fill out the market. And so many, many, many people are able to find books one through three in the original publication out in the wild. You can find that at your thrift store or your garage sale or on eBay. Finding four and five, absolutely impossible. It is just (laughs) avid collectors work really, really hard to find these books. 
And so that is why it's so exciting that Jill Morgan got the contract with Margie to do all five books. And if Margie ever, as she said on her in her interview with us, if she ever does write more, then very likely she'll write those with Jill and they'll continue to come out from Jill in the same beautiful format that we see today. One of the other interesting things is that the three books that are currently available from Purple House Press, books one, two, and three, are in a way, one could argue that they are improvements over the originals. They are larger in size. And Jill had Margie write an author's note to each of the three books. So there's additional content in those books that you won't find in the others. Also, Margie and Jill conspired to put in a cast list in the front of every book. So you would know who's a hedgehog, who's an otter, who's a squirrel, which is very helpful. (laughs) So if you do get the Purple House Press copies, you will be getting those little touches that the author so wanted to be able to do for her readers. And holding our breath and waiting, but books four and five are coming from Purple House Press. And we will be doing book clubs for books four and five as those two books get closer to actually being printed and available. We don't want to ask you to come to a book club for a book you can't find. So that's coming, and we'll check back with you as soon as we are able to do that. When all five books are printed, Purple House Press will be doing a Kickstarter to get all five books in Smythe hardbound offset printing. If you have, from Purple House Press, if you have the Little Britches books, or if you have the Ark and Rowan Farm, or Mad Scientist Club, they're going to look and feel like that. So, mamas, as much as we would love to chat for 20 minutes about this book without giving away the story, we're in the middle of a series. It's time for us to just get right to it. So at this point, we're going to move into spoiler territory. And so if you don't mind spoilers, hang out. If you do, then save this episode and come back to it when you're ready to join us. If you head over to the Plumfield Reads book club discussion group at the BiblioGuides online community, you can come and chat about the book without spoilers or with spoilers. So you'll have the option to do both so you can get a little bit more information. Also, make sure you check out the show notes, links to everything in there and very detailed book reviews that are clearly marked with spoilers so that mamas will know. Mamas, if you haven't started reading this one yet, Let us also just draw your attention to the book review. If you have family members or people in your life who struggle with mental health issues, you may want to know some things about this book before you settle in and read it. So just make sure you check out the book review and feel free to find us in the online community and we'll be more than happy to answer any questions you might have. So ladies, what did you think of this book? I think my first thought was I was shocked it was written in 2007, not 2022. Right? Because there were so many events in the book that I was like, she must have been like (laughs) prescient to be able to know. This is like knowing ahead of time what's going to happen. And and I thought also this might be a comfort to Mm -hmm. kids to read this book having gone through 2022. Yeah. I think I think you're right, Laura. I felt very strongly when I was reading this out loud to my kids that this felt like a healing echo of what we've been going through. It felt like a way to make sense of things that just don't make sense right now. 
so I loved the story. It's definitely, it felt very different from the first two because in the first two, there's a clear evil character or characters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in this one, there's no clear evil. It's like Mm-mm. there's an enemy, but it's an enemy within and mm-hmm. the potential within everybody, within all the characters. It's something the entire yes. community is facing and it gets hinted at throughout the story and finally named towards the end. And I thought it was it was very powerful. And, and Laura was absolutely right. I mean, we didn't name it, but, you know, there's like basically pandemic <laughs> of, uh, yes. like a, you know, outbreak of disease. And, mm-hmm. and then we can touch on the mental health issues as well. Just a lot of areas. It was fascinating. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. It, it made me think in a different way from the first two. It feels more mature than the first two, doesn't it? I think so. It's not, it's not as obvious, like black and white, good versus evil. It's more nuanced. Yeah. And when I say mature, I don't mean scandalous. I just mean a little bit more mature. <laughs> it is a lot heavier in because there are like three enemies because the other one is is nature. Mm-hmm. While they're fighting the pandemic and and the other problem, they're also fighting nature. And I just thought, well, what else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could there be anything else? And that's one question in my actual life. I never say that because I don't. Because right. it, there could be, and I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I'm not asking. I'm really not asking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't need to know, Lord. It's okay. Right. <laughs> well, I would almost say four enemies, because I think we have to take very seriously Juniper's situation. And there is its own kind of enemy. I don't, I, I still have a very hard time knowing exactly how to articulate what's happening with him. But his, the, his own turning in on himself in such a self-destructive way with good cause and understandably, but there's that too. See, I would have named that enemy trauma. Yes. They name the enemy fear at Mm -hmm. the end at one point, Mm -hmm. but also it is trauma that causes the mental illness Mm -hmm. that causes so many of the reactions. And so trauma might be, one of the things. And and I think that the fact that those enemies in this book are things like trauma and fear and nature, that's what makes it feel like it's a more mature book. Because yes. it's not a concrete thing that you can point out and go, there's the bad guy. Right. And even with Juniper, there is a bad guy. Husk is still the bad guy, but he's the bad guy from beyond the grave. And so that also makes it feel a little bit like that dragon has been slayed already. And here we are having to slay it again. And how many echoes will there be of that? How many reverberations of that will there be? And look at the damage it did in in Juniper's mother's life. This is interesting. I absolutely agree with everything that you guys are saying. But what it felt like to me, or the way I viewed it, was that in a lot of books where there's a series, you often see the main characters having their original challenge and adventure, mm-hmm. maybe a hero's journey of sorts, mm-hmm. or a quest, or something that they are overcoming. You, you know, in the first two books, there was something really clear that was the enemy. But very, I don't think very often do you see in a series where they stop and say, like, there's a coming home. And then there's the consequences of the past. 
So in book one, Mm -hmm. when they have the culling happen, it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. But that is going to have ramifications for generations, potentially. And it's not very often that you might find in a book that they will stop and say, well, what were in a children's book, especially, what were the ramifications of culling in our culture? And that's what I thought felt different about the book was that Mm -hmm. they're now they're now home from white wings. And the past is going to come back. And the healing that was not done. And the questions that have not been answered are coming up, and they have to be resolved. And I think that is such a great mirror of life. You can't Mm. bury your past, you can't bury your wounding. You know, after war, I, isn't that interesting? Like when we read World War II books, for example, and we know how horrific the Holocaust was, but how often mm-hmm. do we sit and talk about what were the ramifications for the next multiple right. decades? I often think, what did it take to rebuild Germany? What did mm-hmm. it take to rebuild parts of Europe? And it's not often we sit and wonder the type of healing that had to happen for so many people because of mm-hmm. so many different circumstances. So when we think about what happened to Linty, like my heart broke for her mm-hmm. because what she went through broke her. And right. Right. And then it and then it was tragic because if at any point there had been more of a discussion of the healing and not a burying maybe of it or just of a moving on as mm-hmm. if well we're you know it's fine. A lot of I think Linty at any point could have potentially made a different decision or been helped to make a different decision if there then wasn't all the chaos of everything else that was happening on the island. So in that, it felt very Shakespearean to me. Well, and you know, I think we, what somebody might've read this book five years ago and said, okay, a little much, right? Like, is it really all going to happen like that? Perfect storm from 2020 to today? Yeah. That's exactly how it happens. It starts with one thing, which spirals, which spirals, and it becomes a tempest in a teapot. And you don't even know where the next chaotic, disruptive, dehumanizing thing is going to come from. And so you're right, Tanya, like the the healing that has to happen. I keep thinking, Laura, you said that one of the evils in this one is trauma. You're, you're so right about that. I think that's exactly the right word for this. The the, tra- the post-traumatic response that these people have, how much of it is theirs? How much are they to blame? At the same time, though, CP is talking about how sorry she feels for Linty and what happened. So this really kind of goes with anybody where you just say, are they really to blame? She said, the queen says, yes, but there's always a reason for people to behave the way they do. It may not be a good reason. It may be a very bad one or an insane one, but there is always a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody can say that. And everybody, I always say there's a difference between a reason and an excuse. Right. Everybody right. has them. And uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you're excused from doing what you did. Right. But when we know why, we can better deal with it. We can better help. when Because they knew what Lindy had gone through, their approach to her was completely different than it would have been if she had been... Lady Aspen doing it just to be evil. You know, that I I was really touched by that nuance and really impressed with Margie's skill in illustrating that nuance. That the dignity of every person still matters, even when they are making decisions that 
are inexcusable. Even if it's, even if they're making decisions born out of this other traumatic experience, the reality is truth and goodness and beauty are truth and goodness and beauty. And what's right and just is what's right and just. And she's not behaving in a way that's right or just. We understand why, but it's true that she's not. And I think that Margie handled that so brilliantly. Oh, but I was so mad at Margie at the end with Lug. I just have to say, I just, I mean, if you have eyes to see, you figure something's going to happen, but it felt like he should have died in battle or something. He did. True. Very true. You know, another thing that I thought was really powerful is that when Cedar came and became queen, she was the epitome of what a queen ought to be. And she was literally a healer. She was bringing to exactly. the island the thing the island was going to need. Amen. And I thought we might not have seen all of the responses, the fear, the rumors, the blaming, um, and even the way Linty was treat not treated, but her response, if she had been given an opportunity to heal sooner, might have been different. And mm-hmm. I think... For me, part of it was because they were lacking a king and a queen. Because previously, Husk and Aspen were not acting Mm -hmm. kingly or queenly. They were not having the people's best interest at heart. And they were harming the people. And then chaos ensued. And so in a time after after Husk is gone and Aspen is gone, in a time where the healing could have occurred, they were in crisis again. Cedar comes back and there is very little time. And then chaos kind of ensues again. And I just thought they needed Crispin and they needed Cedar mm-hmm. because of what they were going to bring. It was a little too late. And then things were conspiring and people were acting in fear and they didn't know what, you know, a lot of the people have thought, is Crispin capable of being king? Right. Does he have the capacity? Is Cedar just causing more problems? It's a little bit though, like when you have to pour hydrogen peroxide into a wound, it, it burns and it hurts so badly, but it cleans. And I felt like Cedar's role in this was in part to do the necessary healing, regardless of how painful. Isn't it in the problem of pain when C.S. Lewis talks about that pain is a megaphone upon which God proclaims his love to the world? That a good and loving God would never let us sit in our disease and our living death. And Cedar comes to the island with the same intention. Remember what she says at the end of the second book? She doesn't even know how she heals the animals. The heart just presses on her what to do, and she does it. And she believes it's the heart who does the healing. She is a healer of the heart. So she comes to this island to bring the healing. And we have so much trauma. We have so much scarring that needs to be attended to. It's not unreasonable that the islanders will rise up against her. She may be making them feel their pain in order to heal them. More than just being a scapegoat, but that there's some of that too. Of yeah, course. I mean, it's very realistic, right? That whenever something happens that creates fear, then you, you know, the kind of natural human response is to find something to blame, to explain mm-hmm. the situation, right? So mm-hmm. you see these characters that are trying to make sense of the pandemic and other things that are happening, the loss of Katkin, and and so who to blame but the outsider right so common right right and and so you see them blaming cedar and it takes a while to get to this point but crispin 
brings it to the light. Like that was the answer to the spear yes. is to to bring everything out into the open, to bring it to the light, to talk about it. That was such a healing moment to see the community come together and to see the yes. fear just kind of dissipate as they talked it out, really, is all that mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but it was a really mm -hmm. powerful moment. And one reason it took so long to get there is that he didn't know. He didn't know what was going on because that's what rumors are. And that's what fear is, is that they're sort of under the, the radar. Mm -hmm. And about two thirds of the way, Juniper and Urchin are talking about what's happening. And Urchin says, Brother Fur says, the most dangerous enemies are the ones you can't see. Mm -hmm. You could see Husk. We could see King Silver Birch and Granite and Smoke Wreath, and they were bad enough, but you can't see rumors. We have to do something about them. And I think you could take that rumors there and put almost any other thing that we've been talking about. Um, these people were bad enough, but you can't see trauma. Right. These people were bad enough, but you can't see mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. th there's so much of that swirling. Right. And, and it's really, really real. Yeah. Well, and it goes it goes right back to the first book where it was the cavern, it was the, the cave underneath the castle where Husk was doing his great evil in darkness. And what is Fur's response to that? To bathe that place in light, in sacred and holy light. And that's that was an image that I think resonated with Crispin. Like this is the the efficacy of that. Now we need to go and live that out in all these other ways. I also thought that in treating Lug's funeral the way that they did, we see the same thing. We see a light on his life, a light on his legacy, and we see a celebration of the life that he lived. But it was it was packaged in this elegant liturgy that allowed anybody to enter into it and feel a part of it. I, I loved the reverence she showed for him and his sacrifice in that series of scenes. Well, it gave us all a chance to cry yes. before we had to move on to something else. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> really? <laughs> I think she also gave us an opportunity, and I think a child will do this, to decide where do they see themselves in the story. I, I messaged you, Sarah, and said, I feel like I want to be a circle animal. <laughs> yes, me And I too. think, you know, you can look at hard times that you go through in your life and you can you can see how am I responding to these difficult times? And I often look for mentors in life who has gone through hard times and how did they weather that difficult time so that when I have a difficult time, I have something to look to for how I want to weather the difficult time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in this story, you do see some different responses. Everyone has fear. It's not that Crispin and Urchin and the circle animals don't have fear. They have fear. But they respond towards light and love, and others chose to respond towards darkness and rumors. And at one point, Lug, who is such an honorable character, calls it out. And this is one yeah. of my favorite things. And he says, your majesties and friends, there are some very silly things being said by very silly animals who like exercising their mouths without troubling their brains first. <laughs> And I, you know, that's poignant because you can look and say, am I doing that? Am I mm -hmm. someone who's making matters worse because I'm getting caught up in the rumors? I'm getting caught up in the hearsay and what I think. Did I go directly to the person and get their side? And 
And what Crispin does is he brings it into the light. So he doesn't pray like Fur did and bring light mm-hmm. into the darkness, but he calls light unto it by getting up on a mountain. Like this, the imagery mm-hmm. of this, right? Calling all of the right. people and yeah. him being up above. And when he looks right. one by one and connects with every single person there, mm-hmm. and then he says, ask me, mm-hmm. what is it? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have questions about the queen, bring it to me. Ask me. Mm-hmm. Ask me. Bring it into mm-hmm. light. Stop with the rumors. If you don't know, go to where the answer will be. Mm-hmm. That is the, one of the most powerful lessons I think you can walk away with. Who do you go to for your answers? And you can't live in faith and fear. And that's not even just a religious statement. That is just truth. You can't mm-hmm. live in both spaces. And so if you're living in fear, like where where are you going to find your peace and your comfort and to find really what's true? That's a great, great question to be asking because hard times, like that's life. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's also very much about humility too, because the, um, there's no way I'm going to remember the names of the creatures who were doing this, but the ones who started the rumor about having seen Husk. Oh yeah. The You can see that they're just trying to build themselves up so that they're important in their small group. Right. I don't think originally they thought, we're going to ruin the island by mm-hmm. our rumors. They're just trying to be important to their friends. So right. you've got that on one side that causes all kinds of things that you, you know, unintended consequences. But then you have creatures, characters like Crispin and Urchin who are always saying, I don't know whether I'm good enough. I'm not sure I can do this. I don't know that I should be at this next level or whatever it is, but showing lots of humility even though they are in positions of authority. So I just, I saw a lot of that in there too. Well, it's interesting you say humility because one of the things that you and I talked with Margie about was that Crispin and Cedar are both commoners. And so there is a, it's a double-edged sword in this book because Crispin and Cedar both being commoners contributes to the idea that perhaps they're not gifted for this. Perhaps they're not actually the right ones. Maybe we need to go and get ourselves a real king and a real queen. And yet on the flip side of that, it's their humility, their common status that in fact is exactly what the island needs because it does two things. One, it proves that the heart's in charge, not some random lineage. And two, it proves that every animal has the capacity within them to act nobly and to act kingly or queenly in the appropriate sense of that word. And so they are not the first among men and women. They are merely the first to be humble in front of men and women in front of the heart. And their leadership and their humility is the example that everybody should be following, not worshiping. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a king and a queen that they that they could get lost in the pageantry and and let and, and they wanted to sacrifice their autonomy. They wanted to give up their subsidiarity. They wanted to just be told what to do because then they'd have somebody to blame when it all went wrong instead of having to be accountable to do the right thing on their own. And, and the ones who are harping about that, that they may not really be kingly and queenly, don't have a better idea. No, <laughs> especially when their better idea is maybe Husk is back. Let's try right. that again. <laughs> and But nor do they want to actually say it publicly. Right, because they know right. how insane it sounds. Right. When, right. when right. Crispin says, bring it to me, what, 
what what are your concerns? They mm-hmm. don't want to speak publicly. Mm-hmm. That's no, because that's what rumors do. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it an interesting twist? So they think they want Husk back. Well, Husk's son is Juniper. So if you want if you want Husk back and you want this royal lineage, then maybe you want Juniper as king. Nobody wants Juniper as king. Juniper's not suited to be king. Small side note. I begged Margie. I said, the reason why I need you to write another book is I don't feel like we know Juniper's story yet. Like, he is the character I still don't understand, even after books four and five. We get so much more Juniper. I'm not telling you that he's minimized. He's not. He's marvelous. But there is such a depth to his character. I don't think I don't feel like we've even begun to mine his character. We need more books for Juniper and Fingal. But that's a different issue. I just like Fingal. <laughs> so I keep thinking that Margie's made a point in every book to elevate a different group of people that have been marginalized by society. Mm-hmm. And this one, it was the foreigner, the alien, the mm-hmm. person who's on the, you know, seems to be on the outside. Mm-hmm. And so easy to point fingers at because they do things different. But that's what was needed here was yeah. a different perspective, yeah. a different way of doing things. I really appreciated her, again, in the way she does it so well, where it doesn't feel like it's being beat over your head with a bat, the message. Right, right. It's just that important truth comes through the story. Mm-hmm. I agree, Laura. Well said. What did you guys think of the Husk Juniper storyline? So the book started off and I felt like we missed a section. We didn't get Cedar and Crispin getting married. It's just, oh, there's a baby on the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, it's obvious they're married. But <laughs> yes, they're married. So <laughs> that got skipped over. So mm-hmm. you think... There's a level of maturity about romance, maybe, that isn't touched in this book. Yeah, needed for kids, yeah. But then when that got revealed that Mm -hmm. Juniper was the son of Husk Mm -hmm. and that in kind of negative situations, it was like the maturity level got went kind of went, you know, bumped up a little bit. So I was like, ooh. (laughs) I really struggled with that in my review. I think she handled it quite tastefully. And I was like, how do I put this in the review without it sounding like it's scandalous? This is one of the things that we talked about with Margie. She puts things in that adults know to be scandalous, but children will not. And she does this in order to let them have growth rings, to let them deal with real things but in a way that they can handle. And so I thought she was really, really tasteful about it. But as an adult, I'm thinking, that I did not see coming. I think that it is tastefully presented, but an important thing to know about that all of a sudden there is kind of a mature, how did Laura put it? The the level jumps for a few minutes. (laughs) And, and, And probably most kids will miss that, but you don't know that. Well, you also don't know that they weren't married. That's one thing that was the solace I had was, right? It It's not clean. No, I thought they said that I he was going to marry her know. and he went off. Oh, I I thought you knew you, that. You might I think right. you do. I thought it said that the mom thought that they had been married in secret. Right. 
So if, if even if Husk tricked her and it was a quote unquote fake marriage, she wasn't, it didn't sound like she thought it was. Right. Okay. So, so Tanya, yeah, it, that's what I thought too, was that she thought that she was married. Had been married in secret and was waiting for him to yeah. come back and retrieve. And then they were going to go. And right. maybe he was, they were and, because wasn't that why he killed her? Because he couldn't have couldn't her around Aspen. when he wanted to marry. Yeah. Aspen. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which doesn't really make things better. That's more complicated and more sinister. <laughs> well, it shows his evil, but it doesn't, but yes. it, it takes evil yes. away from her. And I think that that's the real yes. concern is she needs to be, you know, as pure as, as possible because it is entirely possible to tell a story of two evil parents who do not have an evil child. Yes. But that is really heavy for a child. Mm-hmm. Better that Juniper had kind, good, honorable, loving mother. And so I I thought that that was the key distinction. It helps him too. Yeah. And it sounded to me like she was probably young and in love. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that happens. It definitely felt like she was in love and she wanted to protect the baby and she loved the baby. Yes. Found herself in a really not good situation. And that that is a thing. It's a real thing. And it's a bigger thing, I think. I think we want to sanitize our books to make it not a real thing. And I think one of the things that's hard with modern literature is we have all these dysfunctional families in them, but they feel really, really dysfunctional. And it feels really assertive in, in a child's mind. Like this is a very um, this is a very sad home. This is a very sad situation. And I feel like she didn't do that. I feel like she she knew exactly where the line was. How much can I set this up to tell a real story that has value without causing children to have deep and powerful hurt? Now, somebody like like Tanya's daughter is still going to really struggle with a story like this at her age in this moment in time. This is, there are going to be children out there for whom this is still just too much, too heavy. And that's totally understandable. But for my three, it was, oh, okay. That's an interesting choice. You know, it's a sad thing. And we all felt badly for Juniper, but nobody was scandalized by it. You also don't watch him living in a dysfunctional home. Right. In his earlier life. He's raised very cleanly Mm -hmm. and he's different, but you don't watch him suffering from mistreatment or having to hear about the relationship between his parents or anything like that. So that's not a worry. I thought it was interesting that Damson was holding this guilt for so long and really felt like she had to tell the priest about this before she died and that Juniper held that space for her when he was kind of having his world fall apart as she was talking um, and able to respond to her and, you know, give her this sense of peace and forgiveness that she didn't do anything wrong, that she was a wonderful mother to Juniper. And I just thought that was a beautiful thing for him to be able to do. And you just see over and over again, the goodness of Juniper's soul. And I think that's a good thing to know too. Like it's mm-hmm. a, just a great storyline to who your parents are. Do not determine who you are and your character and, right. and that he did have a good mother and that he recognized Damson as his true mother, the woman who raised him. So I thought that stood out to me more than the particulars of the other, you know, the situation of his birth and, and what followed. As the other thing that did strike me, though, was, you know, Husk and this killing of the babies that we see in the first book started with his own child. 
I mean, there's just, right. It was just evil upon evil with him. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like Mother Teresa who says a nation that can kill its own child is a nation that can do any evil. Right now, we're, we are preparing to do the landmark, the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler book club. There, and I read it a month ago, and I cannot get the scene out of my mind where the mothers poison their own children because it's a suicide pact. And that's not even detailed. No, you just, it's one, it's one phrase. And you just have this entire vision of these German officers' wives in a bunker or their homes with their children, making them, I can't, I can't even, I can't even talk about it. That does make it extra satisfying though, when they find Husk to me. We needed to. Yeah, we knew it had to happen like that. For somebody got what they deserved. (laughs) (laughs) There needed to be bones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There had Mm -hmm. to be. Yep. And how many times do we hear that people just need to know that the dragon is slayed? Mm -hmm. I'll just clarify that. What I meant, those children, those German children, their parents may have been evil, but they weren't. There was no need for them to die. Juniper has a difficult situation with Damson. He ends up telling a lie to her. And I I think, again, I think Margie knows exactly where the line is, and, and she straddled it beautifully. But it was interesting to see that unfold the way that it did. What did you ladies think? I think we're going to be in life where we're going to have situations like that and we have to choose the greater good. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Fur will answer this question for him, but I, and I was like, wow, oh, that, that's tough. I would, I don't know what I would do. And he wasn't lying to her for his own good. No, exactly. I would have felt differently if he was like, well, I can get the information I want if I do this. It wasn't about him and his heart, his intention was pure. And I think because mm-hmm. his intention was pure and because he had no other option, otherwise she would have died in without the peace that she really was yearning for and needing. Mm-hmm. And Fur answers it to him and said, if you hadn't, what would have been the outcome? Right. You know, I just think it gives a child or a parent, whoever's reading it, a lot to chew on. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you could discuss just that scene and that question for quite a while yeah, and there are consequences yeah. for him right so like I think ultimately it was mm-hmm. the right choice it was for kind of the best good in a bad situation he still has to deal with the consequences that are really hard on him that now he knows this truth that he wishes he didn't know right at the same time what we don't know is what peace she might have gotten from confessing to juniper mm-hmm and what story she might have told him if she knew it was him there. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. Right. And so sometimes I think when when you discuss, you know, there's always those theoretical questions. Would you have told the Nazis that the Jews you were hi- about the Jews you were hiding because you couldn't tell a lie? I am a, definitely a shades of gray person. So I I'm not saying you should always that there's an easy answer to that. But you, when you make a choice, you don't know the good that could have happened otherwise. That's an excellent distinction. Yeah. It is a choice. That's the point. And there will be consequences either way. 
Right. But one of the things you see, and I feel like I sensed that in that scene, is that Juniper was still always trying to stay connected to the heart and follow the impressions he received from the heart. Yes. And so sometimes the heart may lead you somewhere where you, where it's unexpected. Yes. And even first says, page 75, oh dear, oh dear, yes. Hmm. Sometimes I find it hard to understand why the heart allows things as it does. Mm-hmm. Because the world is broken. Mm-hmm. And because we don't know the bigger picture. Right. Because you don't know all the moving pieces. And so there was so much just having trust in the heart. And then there was a line at the end, and I wish I had written this page number down. I didn't. Maybe it was Fur that was speaking, and he says, if your heart breaks or if you become brokenhearted, the heart will be there to carry your heart, something to that effect. And I just thought it's not that it's you're not going to have the pain or the trial, but that you'll be given what you need in the moment, even if, as your heart is breaking. And that's what was happening to Juniper, even as his heart was breaking. He is preparing to become the priest of the island. His role is to take up Fur's mantle when Fur can no longer carry it. And so there is a seasoning that has to happen of Juniper. He can't just be good. He still has to be who he is, fallible, imperfect, and striving to do the good, striving to submit to the heart and be a servant of the heart. And he is going to make mistakes. And one of the things I appreciated about what Margie shows here is that he isn't perfect and he may have actually made a mistake by telling this lie. The consequences of telling this lie are far-reaching in his own soul. But Lara, like you pointed out, we don't know what healing could have happened for Damson if she had known the truth. And so while I don't have, uh, I don't think that this was an easy situation. I don't think that there's a perfect answer here. And I don't think that we can say one way or another for sure. What we can do is, like in real life, acknowledge that even people who desire to do the right and good thing will still stumble and fall and that the heart will always be there to help pick up the pieces to forgive to mature and to strengthen and so either way juniper comes through this a better stronger servant of the heart in my opinion I thought one of the scenes that really impressed me was when we're talking about being submissive to the heart was how fur he he almost took a back seat in yes. in part of this and there were times where he rested mm-hmm. where he said you know that it looked like the kingdom was falling apart and yeah. here's a leader and what does he do I don't feel good I'm going to mm-hmm. go lay down You know, and I just thought that shows humility. It shows I know who's really in control here and that I'm going to go rest. That's Mm -hmm. what I need. And, and trust that the heart has things in control. And I may be the spiritual leader or the priest of this area, but I'm in submission to someone else who has all events in their control and their sovereignty. And and I really thought that was amazing that he laid, you know, there were scenes where he was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm up in my tower. I'm going to rest. As a Catholic 
there's a particular pope I like, John the Twenty Third, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, and he was famous for saying, "God, it's your church. I'm going to bed." <laughs> and I love that, and that's patterned off of we as Catholics have a tradition of the sleeping Joseph. So there is this. You can get a statue or a card of Joseph, the foster father of Jesus, who is sleeping. And we know how many times did our Lord speak to Joseph through his dreams? But dreams imply sleep, and sleep implies rest. And so there is this sensibility that there is a point at which you just have to give all your troubles to the Lord and go to bed. And I think Fur did that beautifully, as you say, Lara. There was a tie-in to that as well. There was two things. I'm so glad you brought that up was the rest. But also at the very beginning of the book, Crispin kind of gives a response for how you can get through difficult times. And I think if we look back on our experience over the last couple of years, I think many of us might find this to be true also, where he said, I've lived through dangerous times and it's doing the ordinary things that helps you to cope. So the harvest still had to be brought in. I thought, you know, sometimes you just... You just need to do the dishes. It, you need yep. mindless work or you just need to do the thing that needs to be done and do the next yes. right thing. Like sometimes it's not something great. And sometimes it's don't just go shut down. Right. Go take a nap and then put in a little laundry and you'll probably feel better. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I just thought. But oh, you can well. only do that if you have faith that someone else is in control. Right. Amen. Because if point. you feel like the whole world revolves around the next thing you do. Mm-hmm. You can't right. do just the next thing that serves the person next to you, maybe. That's a good right. point. And that you know, requires, a- what do we say about Crispin? That requires humility. I am not in charge. I might be king of the island, but I'm not in charge. The heart is in charge. And there was another point halfway through the book where all this stuff is happening. There's the landslides and the water and mm-hmm. being poisoned. And I think... Aaron says, well, at least the harvest is in. <laughs> we won't starve, too. <laughs> I thought, and that, once again, a great way of looking and having gratitude. Well, yeah. at least these things are still going right while all of yeah. this chaos is happening. And I think you see those little <laughs> glimmers, right? You see, you just see all these different pieces. The baby is missing. Right. The landslides are happening. The water is poisoned. People are sick. But the harvest is here and fur is still here and he's resting and there's just all these good things that are still interspersed throughout the story. And that's, so it still felt hopeful, I think. Yes. One of my favorite parts was where they finally enter the circle and he asks them, uh, Crispin says, urchin of the writing stars, needle of the heart stone said, Crispin, will you love worship and serve the heart? We will, your majesty, they said together. Will you love, serve, and care for this island and all its animals? We will, your majesty. Will you live for justice and mercy? We will, your majesty. Urchin needle, be compassionate, be strong for what is right, fight against evil, protect the weak, care for the young and the old, know how to give orders and how to take them, be true, be generous of heart and paw, be kind. And that reminded me of... We had this blessing that one of our pastors used to say in our church, and it was go forth into the world in peace, be of good courage, hold fast to that what is good, render to no one evil for evil, strengthen the faint hearted, support the weak, help the afflicted, 
Show love to everyone. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Almighty God and Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. And it was just, it seemed to mirror that bless you and then go do good. Oh, and I, that lovely. just made the hair stand up on my arms when I read that. <laughs> and, uh, and Tanya, just so you know, immediately after that is the part you were looking for, which is remember said brother fur that if your heart should break the heart that cares for us broke with love for us, but it still beats for us, keeps us and loves us. May the heart enlighten you and fold you and keep you. Mm. So that, that should have been the end of the book. I full on cried. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, that's really powerful. That was really powerful right. writing. Right. <laughs> well, the good news is this is not the end of the story. There are two more books we know for a fact <laughs> that exist and God willing, there will be more. <laughs> So friends, as always, we cannot possibly have all of the meaningful, good, and vibrant conversation we would love to have in this short of a podcast. We beg you to join us in the BiblioGuides online community that Plumfield Reads has a sweet little reading corner in there, and you are so welcome to come and make a cup of tea and join us. And the good news is that that community's not going anywhere. So even if you discover this uh, podcast episode many months down the road or whenever, that community will still be there. As always, there are going to be links to all the things. Please head over to the show notes on our website and you will be able to find links to the reviews, links to the books, link to the online community, and all kinds of other things. Friends, I cannot wait for book four to come out because in my house, book four is the best. We love book four and it's it's a whole different kind of wild ride and um sword loving boys will be very happy in book four <laughs> feels a lot like the green ember books but written with margie's beautiful voice <laughs> so join us for book four and book five when those release hopefully in a few months and stay tuned on our Facebook page, on BiblioGuide's Facebook page, and on Purple House Press's Facebook page for updates on the future of Miss Mantle. Make sure you check the show notes. Make sure you head over to BiblioGuide's and mark those books and save them on your list. Sarah, Lara, and Tanya, thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm just going to keep saying it. We Book clubs are the best thing. Yes, they are. <laughs> Absolutely. So we bring all the best people to them. Diane and I have spent getting close to a decade talking to each other about books. The thing that we have always said is that, oh, how I wish we could have more dynamic book clubs about worthy books with people who we love and respect and appreciate. And you ladies from BiblioGuides are just the best book club friends. We're so grateful for you. 